anger, frustration, isolation and sadness. These emotions aren't isolated to people diagnosed with dementia or Alzheimer's. The caregivers feel them too. Dementia has an impact on the brains of caregivers, says Dasha Kipper. She's a former consulting clinical director of support groups at an Alzheimer's organisation. And she says caregivers can enter a shame spiral for arguing with a beloved partner or parent who puts the groceries away in the oven or repeats the same question over and over. She offers perspective and reassurance about the neurological obstacles that caregivers themselves face as they care for loved ones with dementia. Her book is called Travellers to Unimaginable Lands, Stories of Dementia, The Caregiver and the Human Brain. And Dasha Kipper joins me now. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. Nice to talk to you. Um, You were midway through a PhD program in clinical psychology, age 25, and you diverted... Uh, Can you tell us why you had a change of plan? Yes, I certainly diverted. Um, You know, I found academia at that time emotionally unfulfilling, intellectually unfulfilling. And I so desperately wanted that one-to-one, more nuanced, qualitative time with people who had neurological disorders. And I casually mentioned this to a friend, and he said, Uh, You know, there's a gentleman who has Alzheimer's and his son is um, looking for somebody to live with him. And I saw this really as an opportunity. I was at first conflicted, but I really saw this as a way of having a front row seat to uh, watching a person struggle to preserve their mind. And so I decided to I decided to move in with this gentleman and take care of him. And you've learned a few things. You say that memory loss is more than just forgetting. How should we think about something like Alzheimer's and what it's doing to the brain of a loved one? Yes, you know, I um, I think that we oftentimes focus, and because I think perhaps it's most socially acceptable for caregivers to really struggle with sadness. And what I found both in my own experience and working with caregivers is that there's so much more that's happening in their mind than sadness. There's so much cognitive confusion and their behaviors can become as baffling and confounding as the person who has the disease. So when I would get phone calls from desperate caregivers, what I would hear is not necessarily them grieving. Of course, there was that too. But what I would hear is a wife telling me, I know how I'm supposed to behave. I know that's not my husband. It's the brain that's acting up. I know I'm not supposed to argue with them. I know I'm not supposed to take the symptoms personally, but I am yelling at a man who I know when I know how to behave, but every day I keep on going back to these patterns over and over. And I would hear this kind of anger, shame, spiral. And it happened for so many caregivers, regardless of how loving and decent and well-meaning they were. Um, There was something about this disease, I realized, that makes it so hard for us to adapt. Yeah. And and to that disease, I mean, we're talking about memory there. And, you know, I said memory loss isn't just about forgetting. You point out in the book, um, for the person experiencing Alzheimer's, it's responsible for all other sorts of things in our lives. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that a lot of the times, you know, I always hear mental health professionals going, why are caregivers saying to their, saying to their family, don't you remember, don't, 
don't you remember? They know they can't remember. But what people don't realize that that memory loss to caregivers, it's not just a symptom. It could feel like an act of betrayal. It's somebody denying your reality over and over. So it's not just the person with a disease that has a tenuous grasp of reality. When you're caring for somebody and you're giving everything you have, and then the person accuses you of never spending time with them because they forget and it's natural, it's very hard to just treat that as a memory loss, especially if you have a history with that loved one, you know, denying your reality or diminishing you in any way. Memory loss can feel very diminishing and a lot of caregivers end up feeling like they're being gaslighted. Yeah, I love this um, sentence from your book. Um, Memory is responsible for creating continuity, meaning and coherence, both for ourselves and for those around us. It's integration into every function of life from speaking and learning to the forming of relationships actually makes its loss all the more difficult to comprehend. And is it useful, Dasha, to think about the memories of healthy brains as well and the fact that they are sometimes selective and inaccurate? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that part of the reason that we, (laughs) part of the reason uh, we struggle, I said this in a chapter when, um, you know, it's very hard for us. It's as social, as social creatures, it's very hard for us when we feel that the person, when we feel that the person um, that we're with is not collaborating our experiences and Mm. our experiences are already very subjective. Um, They're there to serve our personal narrative. So when uh, we hear a, when we hear a dementia patient, you know, um, refuse to own up to reality, of course, an outsider could say, oh, that's just a clinical, you know, that's just a clinical symptom, but we're seeing it as human frailty because all of us have a tendency to kind of select for what makes sense for all our worldview and deny what doesn't fit our worldview. So it makes that kind of line between pathology and normal stubbornness and human <laughs> fallibility mm. a very, a very, you know, tricky um, one. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. In, in what ways did you feel caring for someone with dementia was actually changing you? I think like with many caregivers, um, it really hurt my self-image. Uh, when I moved into the Bronx, I worked so hard to try to learn everything I could about dementia. And a lot of caregivers do too. I was very sincere in my ability. I really wanted to adapt to the person I was caring for. But what happened is a lot of the times, you know, he he saw me as an imposture. He saw me as somebody who was taking advantage of him when I worked so hard to try to make sure that his life was easier, that I began to take his accusations personally. I'm not naturally a very argumentative person. (laughs) There were times where I began to argue and I thought, my goodness, who am I that I am arguing with a 98-year-old man who has dementia? (laughs) And and I began to really berate myself. I'm like, how are you taking this personally? You know this is not personal. You studied this illness. And so it really was... (laughs) It was a really blow to my self-esteem and what I hope to be. Um, And, uh, you know, and of course, I spend a lot of time brooding about this. But after a while, I began to stop brooding and get interested and say, well, why am I reacting in ways that are so self-sabotaging and ridiculous? And it really took shape when I began to meet other people (laughs) who were who were reacting in the same way. Yeah. Is it measurable or, or, um, you know, is, is the is your anecdotal subjective experience? of the ways you were being affected as a caregiver. Is that measurable? Can you see it in the brain of a caregiver? Um, 
what have you learned there? You know, it's, I don't, it's, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure if it's measurable, but I know that there are so many, there's so much research, so much great research that comes from what our brains require and how our profoundly social brains, what environments they do well <laughs> and when they wither. And the, and when a person has dementia, when they can't when you are losing a certain sense of connection, you're not in it together. It's not like caring for somebody who has cancer where you're, it's a terrible situation, but both of you know the score. Mm. Um, it is a situation where you're losing that connection and losing that connection is more than just sad. It actually, it actually takes away a lot of a, your a healthy brain's capacity. So for example, loneliness has been, um, you know, has been linked to a loss of self-control, to emotional volatility. So ironically, all the things that we associate somebody who has dementia with, caregivers succumb to the same thing because they are experiencing a certain isolation. And yes, they're technically with somebody, but there's so much research that shows mm -hmm. that just because you're in a relationship, if you feel alone, the side effects are the same. Hmm. <laughs> so a lot of caregivers, they Gosh, berate themselves. That's almost, yeah. that's almost worth another book, isn't it? <laughs> the loneliness of being yes. in a relationship where you're not feeling the companionship that you might expect. Absolutely. And the truth is, is of course, that could be the, um, Alzheimer's intensifies what is already true in our relationships and in, in general. Mm. And in general, we might have already had some of that with a spouse that we are taking care of. Perhaps um, that person, are, you know, that person already made you feel alone. And then here comes the disease and it kind of adds, you know, it punctures the wound even more. <laughs> it makes you feel that much more alone. Yeah. Um, but the difficult thing is you can't blame them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, before you could, but now you can't. And, um, and what happens is that the caregivers still end up blaming the person with a disease and then still feel very guilty about it. But actually blaming people is another aspect of our social brain. We're not very good at letting people off the hook. And our brain is, our biological imperatives are so strong that we're not very nuanced, whether a person has a disease or not. Um, like when I took Mr. Kessler's behavior personally, <laughs> even though intellectually I knew mm. it was the disease, I think emotionally, so much of our biology is to feel connected with people. Oh. We can't help but blame them. We can't help but feel that pain. And that's what I really wanted to normalize these seemingly irrational reactions to caregivers. <laughs> I'm talking to Dasha Kipper. Uh, she's author of a book called Travelers to Unimaginable Lands, Stories of Dementia, the Caregiver and the Human Brain, looking in particular at the way looking after someone with dementia affects the person who's doing the caregiving. What's dementia blindness, Dasha? Uh, dementia blindness is something, is a phenomenon I observed when I was talking um, to caregivers. So, of course, I listed some of the shame that caregivers carry. One of those pieces of shame is that um, a lot of caregivers say, I can't believe it took me so long to see the disease. I was blind to it. And uh, they assume it's psychological denial. Oh, I didn't want to see it. Um, mm. And so an example of this was a woman whose husband um, whose husband retired. And uh, once he retired, who later on she realized had dementia, what happened was that he started calling her at her work 15, 20 times a day. And she didn't recognize that as dementia. And she told me, I can't believe I didn't see it. And I asked her, how did you 
well, how did you see this? She said, well, he was always, he never took my work seriously. He was always a bit of a narcissist. So he had no trouble bothering me. And in his work, he got so much of an ego boost. He got so much attention. So now that he wasn't working, I just assumed that he was going to me to get all of that validation. And so that's how she saw it. And I realized that that dementia blindness wasn't just psychological resistance of her not wanting to see the disease. There's an there's a neurological component. Our brain has a very peculiar way of looking at the world. We like to well, it doesn't like to see things that are anomalies. It mm. tries to make unfamiliar familiar, and it creates a story uh, even over randomness. So instead of seeing an anomaly occurring, i.e. my husband has dementia, that's why he's calling me. She created a story and our stories usually go with our expectations. Her expectations of her husband was, she called him a benevolent narcissist, <laughs> um, was that he was a man who just, you know, he, he, he put himself over her needs and that's how she interpreted those how she interpreted those things. And this disease is so good at hiding behind a lot of the things that drive us crazy about our family <laughs> and loved ones. So um, this was just an example. So it's really the way that our brain disguises these new anomalies that dementia creates and hides them behind what we expect of them and see as familiar. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some really fascinating stories in the book. You mentioned one of them there. Um, how about Ida? Um, can you tell us the story of Ida who talked to books and it really bothered yeah. her husband? Why, why did he take it so personally? Yes, poor, poor Henry. Um, so uh, Ida, like you said, um, had a as her disease progressed, started talking to book jackets, and um, at and Henry, I'd want to say, was very protective of her inner world. He didn't want to medicate his wife. He was very, um, at first, he was very happy with the fact that at least she had something pleasurable in her life and she was very engrossed. But soon she began to really start ignoring him. She reserved the tender parts of herself just for these uh, conversations. She began to um, look at him as if he was eavesdropping. And um, during one moment when um, she be she behaved in peculiar ways, she wanted to feed them as if they're part of the family. Um, and um, at one point when she uh, wanted to feed one of the book jackets, some of her dinner that her husband made, you know, he, 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 started yelling at her and saying, you're being ridiculous. Your craziness is making me crazy. And if somebody was to see this from the outside, they would say, well, that was cruel of Henry. Does, isn't it clear <laughs> that this poor woman is riddled with um, delusions? Mm. And um, why would you yell at somebody who's so obviously helpless? And I wanted to be clear that Henry was such a decent, kind man. He was riddled with guilt and shame. He couldn't believe it. He would oftentimes make these self-deprecating remarks about himself, like what a great husband he was. Because, it, I mean, it was certainly not lost on him. But this goes back to the fact that our brain is so social and is so easily hurt that the nuances of whether somebody is somebody has a disease is the reason that they're <laughs> is the reason that they're acting in ways that um, are hurtful actually matter to us less than we think. We like to think that we're rational people and context is everything, but that's 
<laughs> but as social psychologists say, that's a lot less true than we would assume. So um, in that chapter, I mentioned experiment where even when people are told they're going to be rejected, by computers, the part of our brain <laughs> that um, the part of our brain that um, registers social pain still is activated, mm. and you would think that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Who are who? Are, what is this computer to you? But if you think about that, then if that's the case, then of course somebody we've been married to for decades who suddenly starts ignoring us, or who might be hurtful in ways that they've always been hurtful. How is that not going to make us feel yeah, pain? Totally. And you, you tell quite a heartbreaking story about Mitch and Elizabeth. They have a lovely dinner, and then suddenly mm -hmm. he no longer recognizes her as his wife tells her to get out of the apartment. Um, yeah. And she tries to reason with him. And, of course, dementia patients don't understand or sometimes don't really want the truth. What do they need, do you think? What dementia patients need is what we all, this is what, you know, caregivers jokingly know that how they should be if they're quote unquote good caregivers mm -hmm. is that they really need to, they need to be validated. And what we really should do ideally, although it's much, it's much easier said than done, is that we should really try to register their emotional needs rather than argue with the facts of what they're presenting. Yeah. So. Uh, so if somebody, if a caregiver is um, accusing you or trying to kick you out, instead of arguing with them and presenting them the facts, what you should really do is talk, is really pay attention to the fact that they're emotionally distressed, they're confused. And the best thing to do is to find ways to emotionally reassure them. And that's not going to be through something intellectual or cerebral by making them look at the facts, but creating an environment where they feel like they're in control and that they're loved with or without you. Mm. And that's a very difficult thing to do. You don't need to convince them that it's actually Tuesday, not Monday. You just have right. to yes. hear them. And yes, as you say, easier easier to say this uh, in, a, yeah. in a radio interview, uh, much yeah. more difficult when you're actually in the room with someone. I was yeah. I, I was delighted that, um, that the uh, study I put into the play Waiting for Godot at university finally paid off um, because, oh. you, yeah, because you think that play is a useful... What, analogy for dementia? Um, I love this phrase of yours. You say Waiting for Godot has a, quote, peculiar ratio of hope to hopelessness, so characteristic yeah. of dementia. Can you explain that for us a bit? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm going to try to do this as succinctly and without <laughs> tension as I, I could possibly. I mean, you've already done it in the book, so it's a bit cruel to ask you to do it again. But, but maybe what, you know, what sort of point are you making here? Not at all. I just thought I've always been so moved by waiting for Godot. And when I was in the Bronx, I, like it really hit me. And I think what is interesting about that play is that every day kind of begins the same, right? It's the same conversations between the two uh, between the two characters. Yeah. It's the same threats, the same empty promises, and it feels like each day begins without the memory of the next. And that's what made me think of dementia in some ways and there's a on the one hand there's a hopelessness to it but on the other hand i think that there's something so tender about the fact that they can't help but kind of slide back into one another and i say that it's not the um it's not the promise of godot that keeps them coming back it's kind of the promise of language of talking with one another of their bond that kind of keeps the keeps them together despite their threats of leaving mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 
and this happens a lot with dementia. There's a lot of threats. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of empty promises. Everything seems so futile, but in the end, you're still left with this relationship, and it's very hard to it's very hard to measure what that is. But two people still end up coming back to each other, even when things appear very bleak. This was never meant to be a how to deal with dementia patients manual, Dasha, but you've lived it and you've helped so many caregivers through it. Could I finish by asking if you have any advice on what people can do and and what sort of approach works best? Oh, um well, thank you for saying that, firstly. Um, yes, I didn't want it to be a manual because there are so many books about how, <laughs> what to do. I mm. wanted to explain why um, why we can't do a lot of the things that we're supposed to do. And this was not supposed to be a pessimistic thing about how, oh, I guess we're hopeless because there are so many things that are set up against us to become ideal caregivers. I the advice I'd want for caregivers is two things. I really want them to have a sense of self-compassion when they find themselves acting in ways that they uh, know they shouldn't behave and to understand that um, there are no saints when it comes to caregivers. And the other thing, if you want, if you really want to do right by um, by the person you're caring for. You have to do right by yourself. And it becomes such a trope and almost a cliche when we talk about self-care. But the, what I've learned about the brain and doing this is that our capacity for self-control is not limited. The person who has dementia, we accept, has very little capacity for self-control. But healthy brains also have very little capacity for self-control. It is a limited resource in our brain. And so it is so important that you have time away from the person you're caring for, not just so you can fuel other relationships, which is so important because we are social creatures, but because eventually you're going to hit a wall. That is not because you are, a, that is not a character flaw. It is how we're wired. We are not meant to use our, um, you know, our brains have limitations, even if they're healthy. And the most important thing is to nurture your mind, because you're going to be able to have a lot more resources to deal with this incredibly difficult counterintuitive disease. What a great job you've done on this book. Uh, thank you so much for the work you've put into it and for the time with us today. Uh, I've been speaking to Dasha Kipper and the book is called Travellers to Unimaginable Lands, Stories of Dementia, the Caregiver and the Human Brain. Thanks, Dasha. This was a pleasure. Thank you.